Welcome to Noble Warrior. This is a place where entrepreneurs talk about what it takes to build, to create a purpose-driven life. We're going to talk about mindset. We're going to talk about mental models. We're going to talk about actionable tactics such that you can take everything you learn and go out and create your own. My name is C.K. Lin. I've been a PhD biomedical engineering at UCLA. I've been a director for the University of California. I'd be a startup executive. I am, now I'm an executive mentor for philosopher entrepreneurs. I'm on a quest to find out what it takes for other entrepreneurs to create a life of fulfillment, joy, and purpose. My next guest is the founder of the Zen Warrior Training. He went through the hero's journey of going from top cyclist, skier, athlete, to paraplegic, to now presence coach. He now helps others to overcome challenges and make their life an adventure. He is unapologetically raw and honest. Please help me welcome Sam Morris. Mm, thank you, CK. It's great to be here. I'm excited about our conversation. <laughs> How was box breathing for you as a start of a podcast interview? I loved it. That's the sort of thing that I try to do intentionally before I either facilitate or or get on an interview myself. So having you facilitate it was great. It's nice to not always be the one who's facilitating the breathing techniques. So my friend, let me just jump right into what about you I'm so excited to have a conversation with. Okay, so you have a really inspiring story of being a top athlete, skier, uh, cyclist, cross country, to paraplegic, to presence coach, to now help other people make their life an adventure. Now, what's really cool about you right away when I hear you speak is how grounded and raw and honest you are. And ju I just love that. So was it a cultivated process that it's a life of just, this is who I am and so be it, whatever it takes, or has it always been there and you have just been gifted with that? It's a really good question. It was, for me, it was an experience of, and by it being as grounded as I am, it's something that I began cultivating growing up in Maine. The people that live in Maine just for the most part are pretty grounded. And I grew up living on an organic blueberry farm and my early childhood memories were just of myself and nature, whether that was in blueberry fields or riding my bike or swimming or whatever. I just have a lot of experiences or I, I have a lot of memories of just that self and nature experience without all of the mental chatter. And so that I think really helped to instill a grounded personality and energy. And then we'll talk about this more, but you mentioned the paraplegia. When I became paraplegic, that was really ungrounding for me. It put me in a state where it's really hard to name it, but somewhat disassociated a state of reference. It was, I went from feeling like a, a, a very grounded 24 year old athlete to suddenly feeling a lot like 
it was like I, I became innocent and mm, almost boyish, I felt. Now, people on the outside may not have seen that. But for me, there was a lot of needing to try to find myself and fit in and confusion that was wrapped around going from being able-bodied to suddenly becoming disabled at the age of 24. So the way I am now, the groundedness that you see now is really a return to who I've always been that is not dissociated. I see. So it's like going through the hero's journey, part of your superpower of this groundedness, this man, this force for good that I see in front of me actually came from this wound that, and this trauma that you experience. Is that an accurate way to reflect back what you said? Yeah, yeah. And it gave me so much firsthand experience with what it's like to not feel like oneself, where, and which created a lot of compassion, I think, for me, because I, you know, I think I was lucky enough to feel like myself a lot. And then when I became paraplegic, I didn't feel like myself at all mm. uh, in, in certain respects. And so I had to go through a lot of work to get out of my head, to move past ideas that I started to develop about myself, limiting beliefs that I started to develop about myself and return to my true self. So it gave me a lot of compassion for where that happens with people, because I don't know if otherwise I would have had quite as much. I know that I wouldn't have had as much insight into the way that people can become disassociated from themselves. Yeah. Do you mind going into that pain, that darkness of the soul, the belly of the whale, those moments? And it's not because I wanted to have you dwell back into the pain per se. Sure. Sure. But I want people to have an idea of what is it that we're talking about here? Because yeah. you've experienced during those three years, you publicly said those were well, some of the, you suffer a lot, right? During those three yeah. years. Uh, yeah, I, I suffered a lot for many years, more than three years. Yeah, it was cycles and layers of suffering and so forth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I'm happy to describe it as best I can. Well, the first, and, and, but, yeah, but I want to, I wanted to people to listen from, Hey, we're not just revisiting Sam's old wounds and, you know, trauma and so forth in a public way. I'm using what he's experienced as a way to illustrate. This is not dissimilar to what some people may be listening right now, going through COVID or job loss or relationship friction or whatever it may be their own suffering as it is right now. So yeah, there will actually be probably a ton of similarities that people experience. And that's the thing that I find so fascinating is that in a lot of ways, the human experience as different as we all are, there's, we're a lot more alike than we are different. We all have different trajectories and different ways of experiencing life, but so many of the same principles are consistent no matter who you are and no matter what experience you've been through. So whether it's physical paralysis or the loss of a loved one or whatever it is, there 
we are humans at the end of the day, we're humans and we have a lot of very similar experiences. So my own experience with darkness came the first time I really remember it was a week after my spinal cord injury happened. So this is the fall of 1999. And I had just finished leading a cycling trek across the U.S. for nine teenagers. And that was, we finished that in August of 99. That was a 3,800 mile long trek. And I was an outdoor leader at the time. And like you said, snowboarder, skier, active outdoorsman, hiker. And one night I end up in the backseat of a car driven by a guy whom I had never met before. He was a friend of a friend and we were going to a bar and on the way to the bar, he lost control of his car on a dirt road, hit a tree. I broke my back, broke the T12 vertebra, had what's called a T12 complete spinal cord injury. So that mm -hmm. meant that the injury, I had zero sensation or um, motor function from my injury down after that happened. So this happened at the level of right around my navel. So still today, 21 years later, it will actually be a week from now. It'll be my 21st anniversary since my injury happened. Mm. So still today, 21 years later, I have no sensation or motor function from the navel down. And when the accident itself happened, I maintained consciousness the whole time. I never lost consciousness because I didn't hit my head. And I remember being in a total state of shock because just like that, I'd gone from being able-bodied, 24-year-old guy, to suddenly being paralyzed and sitting in this back, back of this car, just, oh my God, what am I going to do now? Like, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. Like, in total shock. So ambulance comes, brings me to the hospital and uh, they do MRIs and CAT scans and stuff like that, that night, next day they do a surgery on me and they put me on morphine and for the pain that of breaking your back, it's pretty severe pain. Mm. And so they put me on morphine. I had the surgery, the spinal fusion surgery, and then a week after they took me off morphine and I didn't realize that entire week I had been in a state of denial because I, it didn't even occur to me that my mindset was being so influenced by the morphine. I thought that I was doing okay, but I was just totally numb and I became lucid for the first time since the night of the accident. And when I became lucid, I started freaking out. I don't want to be here. I do not want to be alive. There's no way I can go on like this. Absolutely no. Get me out. I'm done, done, done. I cannot live paralyzed for the rest of my life. And uh, it was a real, if I had, I've told this story a thousand times, if I'd had a sharp object around, I don't know if I would be here today, but I was lying mm -hmm. in a hospital bed in the middle of the night and there was nothing there, no tools, no implements to off myself. And the only thing I could think to do 
was yoga. I kept on thinking I wanted to do yoga for some reason. And I'm like, how am I going to do yoga? What, like, why am I even thinking that thought? And then it occurred to me that the most powerful part of yoga is the focus on the breath. And it occurred to me that I could still breathe. So I just started to breathe deeply, as deeply as I could. And a few minutes went by and suddenly out of nowhere, just like this, boom, nothing that was previously bothering me was bothering me anymore. Suddenly I had passed through a threshold of consciousness. And on the one side of that threshold was everything I ever thought that I knew about myself and my identity, my relationship with my body, my name, my interests, where I was born, all the stuff, all the content of my mind was on one side of that threshold. And I went to the other side and experienced myself as pure awareness. And I saw myself almost essentially was an out of body experience. I became so connected to my breath that I no longer could feel the inhale or the exhale anymore. Mm. I, I just became breath mm. and I just dissolved completely into breath. I was breath. I wasn't body. I was breath. I wasn't body and I wasn't mind. Those were clearly the denser forms of the material. And mm. I had transcended that the denser forms of the material and had become immaterial awareness. Mm. And what I realized is that we are all immaterial awareness that mm. there is nothing material about us other than our, the way that our minds shape our experience of life in the three-dimensional world that we live in. Mm. But it became very clear that that's not actually who we are mm. and that who we actually are is the immaterial awareness that is aware that there is a body and mind experiencing a material world. And when that happened, it was totally profound and I, it changed me forever. It so was the pause, pause for a moment. Pause yeah. for a moment. You had some reference points. You had study this. This is after you studied Buddhism. This mm -hmm. is also after your first ayahuasca psychedelic mushroom experience at 16, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd had several psychedelic experiences more than several quite a few psychedelic experiences from okay, great. age 16 or 17. so would you say because of those reference points that makes you feel like oh this is actually my first spiritual awakening experience it's okay versus someone who has never had any kind of teachings or visceral experience would be like holy shit, what's happening that's i think that's accurate i think that's accurate yeah the psychedelic experiences that i had when I started using psychedelics, I thought, you know, as a naive kid, I thought, this will be cool. That will make colors change and it's supposed to make sound different and stuff like that. Little did I know I was going to be playing with the very behind the scenes experiences of consciousness and going, whoa, this is way more profound than I thought it was. And and it's, it was through psychedelics and also my 
my relationship with nature that I was attracted to Buddhism. And that, yes, that happened before. My, so my interest in Buddhism began around probably 1997, something like that, 1997, 98. And, uh, and also I had done some studies of both um, yoga and Aikido prior to my injury as well. So I did have some reference points for mindfulness. I never thought that I could actually just dissolve completely and become the breath. That was a whole other thing. Yeah. What kind of med what, kind what kind of yoga did you do? Because uh, pardon me for the ignorance, but in my mind, yoga is very entire body. So for, sure. uh, what would you do as a paraplegic? Actually, since my injury has happened, so I actually dove deeply into a practice called continuum movement, which is what mm. brought me out to Los Angeles. Mm. Continuum is a phenomenal movement practice, somatic practice. It was created by a woman named Emily Conrad. And she, I was amongst very few people who had the opportunity to study privately with Emily. Mm. She was revered in the somatics community around the world for the depth of the work that she did. And the work really, how do I describe it? It's always so hard to describe. It involved using one's awareness and creation of sound and breath and wave-like undulating movement in the body as a means by which to unwind trauma. And when I say unwind trauma, not only personal trauma, not only trauma from one's own personal experience with life, which we all have, but the the collective trauma as well. Mm, and and when I refer to the collective trauma, one of the things that I'm referring to is the way in which as human beings in modern culture, we've really lost our connection with the body. And by bringing your attention in an exploratory manner where you are simply curious and you're spending hours in a state of curiosity about what's going on inside the body with just an open state of attention. Mm. There's so much, in fact, I did this last night. I went to bed early last night and I was awake for a while and for a few hours, I did nothing but the most minute movements in my body. And when I say minute, I'm talking about just moving my fingertip as little as I possibly can, but mm. maintaining my awareness inside the fingertip, doing these micro movements in the fingertip. Mm. Now you'll notice if you practice this, it's like really challenging to keep your awareness inside your fingertip in, with such a subtle degree of connection mm. because we tend to fall out and go into our heads. And this is where we become disembodied the continuum movement practice that I studied and that I still work with 
is a, I would call it a re-embodiment practice. Yeah. So as a recovering cerebralist, right? And someone who actually wants to move away from the head, and I'm very trained here and want to get closer to the body. Would this continuing movement be a great modality for someone like me who is super heavy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you ever yeah. done, by the way, a Vipassana? Okay. I haven't done the, I have not done the 10 day retreat, but I would like to at some point. So I'll reveal a little bit about Vipassana. Vipassana is one of the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, precisely because it you literally you sit still and you focus on just for the first three days, you just focus on this area in your, in, in your face. Three days, and, and the whole point of it is to develop the modality, the fidelity of your own awareness before they broaden the scope to everywhere else and the internal, the external, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was torturous, dude. It was pretty, pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, so challenging. So, similar to there's so much there's such a similarity to what i was just talking about yeah because anytime you bring your awareness into such a, a fine specific place it's like our minds are so conditioned to want to go anywhere but here anywhere but this present moment and that's why that's why meditation practices and somatic practices, it, it sounds so simple and yet it's so challenging because our minds are just wanting to race and run and go explore. And they are like, yeah, they're like wild animals and disciplining the mind to stay present is so challenging. So one of the key uh, metaphors that I love instead of trying to beat your mind into this, into discipline, into submission, uh, think of it as a puppy. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. whenever it wanders, you're not going to beat your puppy. Some people do. <laughs> the right. way to do it is, is to bring it back. Oh right. yeah. But here puppy, you're in a loving right. place. And then you eventually, and it never ends. That's right. But at the same time, eventually you will be able to do it for longer, do it for, for more sustainable ways. So I'm curious to know your thoughts around this whole That's idea. Right. That's right. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that trying to be too harsh with ourselves and try to beat the mind in the submission does not do anything any good. I love your analogy of the puppy. I think it's, it's perfect because you, yeah, you would be kind to that puppy. You would be compassionate and yet you would be direct too. And uh, one of my teachers once said that when dealing with the body, deal with it in a way that is very much like an animal because it is an animal mm. and the animal doesn't really understand complex statements or concepts doesn't really understand things like 
if you're trying to focus more, it, the, uh, the body doesn't understand things like it would really be good for you to focus more because if you focus more, then you'll be able to get these things on your to-do list done. And then you'll hopefully be able to feel more satisfied with yourself and X, Y, Z. The body doesn't really know that language. The body only knows sit. Stay, sit, stay, mm -hmm. pay attention. It's like a direction. If you can give your body a direct direction, just in the same way that you would give a dog, a dog is not going to understand all these concepts. <laughs> Complex arguments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't pee on the rug because I don't like to clean up the smell. And when people, yeah. when my guests come in, blah, 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 all that stuff, the dog is not going to know anything, but don't pee on the rug being very like, and then move the dog where it needs to be moved. And we need to do the same things to our same thing to ourselves because we actually are in animal bodies. And I think that's one of the most challenging things to remember is that we actually are never separate from our animal and our animal only understands things through a very direct, simple communication. Yeah. In my younger days, the younger CK would think, oh, I'm in my athletic mode now, so therefore it's the body. My study mode now, therefore it's the mind. Mm. Categorizing it based yeah, yeah, on yeah. your activities. And, and then, but in reality, it's actually superpositions stack on top of each other and never separate, compartmentalize into yeah. one thing. Yeah. Uh, they use that more, but it's always all at the same time. So that's why I'm a, such a passionate student for integrated learning yeah. of anything, integrated living, really. Yeah. So, yeah. Just yeah. focus around the embodiment practices. Yeah. And, and then when you're embodied, it's like this mind, this beautiful mind that we possess, it can be used very intentionally. It's all, I feel like the mental chatter, the, the monkey mind that we experience is where we are disembodied, where mm. we're not connecting to the body first. And so the mind is looking for a direction. It's like, okay, mm. well, I'm not, if I'm not getting a direction from CK's connection to his heart or his groin or his legs or his relationship with the earth, if I'm not receiving that input... I'm going to create my own directions. I'm going to just go, I'll find a direction somewhere here because that's what I do is I take direction. So I'll look for a direction and I will try to create my own direction. Mm. And so that's where people get in thought loops, disembodied thought loops. And so the practice of coming into your body, the quieting of the mind I see as creating a resourceful mind. So the mind is able to operate in a way where it is serving a greater intention that comes from the whole body, from the physicality, from the connection to the breath, from the present moment. And then the mind is able to take your direction and go, oh, that's what we want to do here. Oh, we want to focus on CK right now. Okay, cool. We'll focus on CK because that's coming from the entire body versus the disembodied uh, mental chatter and thought loops.
Can you give us a concrete example? So say someone, the younger CK, I always make it the younger CK, the, the subject, because he's mm -hmm. easy to, to throw under the bus. So, <laughs> <laughs> so say the younger CK is having some neurotic thoughts right now, and he is just anxious about whatever. Mm -hmm. What concretely would you tell him to do? So that way he can... Since the younger CK, and you've already mentioned this about you, is someone who really values and has always valued your cognitive capacity, a really highly intelligent person who understands things intellectually and that the intellectual part of you, you, the analytical part of you clearly has gotten priority through a lot of your life. So what I would do knowing that is I would then give you an explanation that would satisfy the logical mind of mm -hmm. why you were experiencing what you were experiencing. Mm -hmm. So instead of looking at it from the perspective of you should be able to ground yourself or why aren't you more grounded or whatever, or trying to bring you into some sort of embodiment practice right away, I would first address it at the level of the intellect. Mm. And so at the level of the intellect, you could understand that the brain creates different brainwave patterns depending on what's going on internally and externally in our outer environment and in our inner environment. Our brain is going to be in any given time of day, whether we are waking or asleep, our brain is going to be experiencing different types of brainwave patterns. And when you are stressed out and finding that you are just experiencing thought loops and you're not able to move beyond that, what's actually happening is your brain is hanging out in a high beta brainwave state. Mm. And so that's, we spend a lot of our waking hours in either mid to high level brainwave state where we are taking input from our surroundings. We are analyzing them with our thought-based logical minds. We're taking that input and we're turning it into, we're creating meaning out of it. And we're using that meaning to navigate the world. Essential quality to be able to have, it's super essential. It's not going to help you to find out more about yourself because it's that it's not going to help you to ground inside of yourself to be hanging out in that high beta brainwave state when you experience sleep or rest deep rest there's something where that begins to subside and in that state as young as younger ck goes from being awake to asleep there's that space that younger CK I'm sure entered that just feels really nice, really relaxing. And suddenly it's like all of that mental chatter is just not present because then you're entering into an alpha state. So by communicating, by helping you to helping younger CK to understand this at an intellectual level, I think that would then give the logical mind permission to explore embodiment practices, which can help to relax that type of brain activity 
and bring you deeper into a present moment experience where there's less of that brain activity happening. Yeah, thank you for that. That actually makes a lot of sense. It also reminds me of the book, The Five Language of Love as well. Mm -hmm. What is someone's language of love or what they're actually listening for? Mm -hmm. for the physicality part they're listening for a physical touch are they listening for some the mental explanation of some things as a way to relax the mind and then now more open to whatever suggestions that you may have in the, in the embodiment practices that you may give exactly exactly and, and it's the sorry yeah please hide drink yeah yeah please. Yes. Um, the, that high beta brainwave state oftentimes to a certain degree will be in a mild fight, flight, or freeze reaction over the course of any given day without even realizing it will be, will experience amygdala hijack where we are having an emotional reaction to our situation and to our circumstances, our external environment, we'll be having an emotional reaction that will sometimes paralyze us, keep us from moving forward or make us react in some way to what's occurring. Otherwise, life is a dynamic system. It's always in motion. It's always in movement. And that's the way consciousness is really meant to express itself. It's always supposed to be a dynamic system that is never static. When things are static or they appear to be static, what that shows to me is there's a degree to which the there's a sympathetic nervous system response in reaction to the environment, creating a fight, flight, or freeze mode inside of us. The easiest way to get out of that is to start to focus on nasal breathing, which then re-engages the parasympathetic nervous system. And so re-engaging the parasympathetic nervous system is the physical technique that is needed to bring someone into a feeling of more contentment and peace, maybe a state of even oneness potentially. But when we're using these examples, some of these examples can sound almost too esoteric and non-concrete for a lot of very rational listeners. They might yeah, be like, it's, yes. you know, it's, it just sounds, it sounds maybe a little flaky, new agey, et cetera. But really all we're talking about is different ways of orienting the central nervous system so that it can do what it's actually meant to be doing versus getting caught in a pattern of behavior where it's in a reaction to its environment. And when that connection happens, then we are linked up to ourselves and it's through that creates that sense of peace and contentment. And then it really doesn't matter what's going on in the external environment because inside you're experiencing a sense of peace. Yeah, the subjective reality is now calm. So we, we went on a digression for a little while as yeah. to your spiritual awakening. Bring, bring so it say, back. Yeah. So say now that you've experienced this oneness with the collective, this oneness, this ease, I'm not my body, I'm not my emotions. 
And then what? Are you are you there in the samadhi forever? Are you back and back Hardly. to society? Hardly. Hardly. So bring us back to the moment a little bit, a few minutes after you experience this oneness. Now yeah. you're back to your body, fresh in this new disabled body. And now what? Yeah, so it's a great question. Imagine that time being like, I'm not sure how long it lasted because it felt eternal, but it may have lasted an hour or so, something like that. Mm. Maybe a little bit more. When I came back from it, excuse me, it's very similar to if someone has experienced a psychedelic journey where your familiar framework for reality returns relatively completely. What you're used to experiencing and how you're used to thinking and et cetera, how you're used to experiencing your environment will return after a few hours with a psychedelic experience. And in the same way, the way in which I was accustomed to experiencing myself returned shortly after that awakening. However, just like a, a, a really powerful psychedelic experience, it was something that left a lifelong memory inside of me and one could even go as far as to say a multi-life long memory because it did not seem to be that this was limited to one life what i was experiencing hmm. and so there was this lasting memory and it was like a reset button had been pushed inside of me where the next years the next several years were going to be incredibly challenging and in in fact in many ways, my life now is incredibly challenging. So I think it's important for your listeners to know that, you know, while I'm showing up the way that I am and doing the work that I'm doing, it's not like there's some sort of permanent sort of transcended space that I've managed to get to that where the challenges no longer bother me. Instead, 21 years later, it's in a certain way, there's going to be radical challenges ahead of me in my life from this. But it was like a reset button had been pushed inside of me that night that just said, you're going to be able to handle the challenges ahead of you because who you are is not the subject of your thoughts and feelings. Who you are is never the subject of your thoughts and feelings. Who you are is the awareness that thoughts and feelings are happening. And you can always come back in relationship to the awareness of the subject and realize that that's who you really are. And I don't know that I, I, I certainly would not have been able to express it in those words at that time, mm. but I can express it in those words now. And, and I think that's, it's one of the most fascinating things about the human condition is that we mistake the activity in our minds. We mistake it for, we are the idea that who we are is the subject of the inner talk. Yeah. Our, our, who we are, our consciousness, is the collection of mental images, thoughts, emotions, and physical reactions that we have. 
that's our to the totality of our subjective reality. Yeah, that's the subjective reality that we reference when we think about who we are. When you think about when people ask you who you are, the first thing that you're going to talk about is your name, where you're from, what you're interested in, what your vocation is, your career, etc. whatever. You're going to give this sort of laundry list of words and concepts that are describing your subjective experience, just like you said, but that's actually never who you really actually are. And yeah, anyway, it's fascinating. So this is the, this is the thing that I can geek out on for hours. You, you came through the right podcast. To do that. <laughs> this, is, this is exactly what we talked about. Cause in my mind, I've been doing a lot of searching, achieve a lot in my life. And after all of my search, I realized one thing, my brain between my ears is the source of all my bliss. It's also the source of all my suffering. Mm -hmm. So unless I have this, I don't say under control per se, but have the discipline to really understand the psyche of this machinery, all of these stuff are just proxies to this. So mm -hmm. hence, why, hence why I started this podcast to actually have deep inquiries with other people who are on the same path, other yeah. warriors, other yeah. entrepreneurs as well. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating stuff. This is what we're talking about for those listening who are trying to wrap your heads around what we're talking about. This to me is the key to everything. This is the key to unlocking what we talk about is potential. And I think potential is a strange term because it can, it can often be adopted by the ego mind and it's, and, and then the, the idea of potential then can be, some people will adopt that and, and turn it into what can I accomplish? And my potential is related to that, which I can accomplish. And that to me is doesn't have anything to do with potential. That's just what you choose to do in the world. For me, the, the potential is in having a deeper understanding of the nature of human existence and of relieving oneself of the burden of being caught in the subjective projections of the unconscious mind. That's potential. Ooh, now I'm freer. Now I don't have to be. <laughs> I love that. You uh, qualifiers freer. Freer. Not freedom, but freer. Yeah, freer. <laughs> exactly. So the question I have for you is this, right? Because you had an experience of this oneness, of this super consciousness. One of the interesting mental models, by the way, just so that you don't know yet, but I love mental models. So I'm mm -hmm. going to metaphorically share this with you to, mm -hmm. to, to, to tap into this very esoteric topic that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So if you think about consciousness, I believe I come across a beautiful model, four layers. And the very inner core is the super consciousness that you were talking about, the pure awareness, right? That one mm -hmm. the, you know, the inner Godhead and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then one above that would be identity. What mm -hmm. I think about myself my self-identity. Mm -hmm. One above that would be personality. 
what I want you to think of me. Mm-hmm. Successful, smart, all these things. And then one above that, exactly, good hair. Another layer above that would be perception. Mm-hmm. What I think you think of me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> so the question now is, you had this taste of this superconsciousness briefly, and it's life-changing, and you had a, a baseline. However, in my own experience, whenever I have neurotic thoughts, these constructs that pile on top of my superconsciousness, I lose touch of it. I forget about it. Then I'm back to, oh, I am my identity. Oh, I have to be this way. Oh, I must grab that in the empty pursuit of whatever. Mm -hmm. Hence why, for me, the medicine path, the psychosomatic path or the techniques that I learn, that I teach, is so important to me because now I can regularly maintain, yes. you know, get access to this versus Ram Das. Once you're not going to the door answers, you stop knocking. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I take a bath or the shower today. I'm going to take a shower tomorrow. <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. not, you don't mm-hmm. take a shower one time and say, all right, I'm done. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Curious to know your thought, like what? What's your take on that? Oh, it's an everyday thing. I had a night just a few nights ago where I was just in a dark place and I was going to bed and I was lying in bed and it just felt like all of the pressures of life were just more than I could handle. It just felt like, wow, I no idea. It all felt like it was hitting me all at once. And I couldn't filter out financial pressures from emotional pressures, et cetera, physical pressures. I couldn't separate out any of them. All I could do is sit there in physical pain and mental darkness, just experiencing this feeling of overwhelming burden, like that the that life just felt so impossible. And it's so easy to go into that story and believe it. It's so easy to go into that story and believe it. And it will happen to me from time to time where I will fall into that story and I'll just buy right in because, you know, it, I, I think on some level it offers a certain amount of, despite the darkness, it, it almost offers a certain amount of relief. If I can say life is impossible, then I can just feel like I am giving up right now. I don't need to be master of my fate in my life. Exactly. I don't have to be responsible for all of this Mm -hmm. because everything is too challenging to be able to take on. And, And so in a sense, I just, so I just, I allowed myself to have that experience without trying to fight it. And without trying to, without my ego coming in and saying, oh, come on, you can't allow yourself to do this, blah, 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 blah. You know, I know better than to do that. I've, I've been through enough of these moments where it felt like complete hopelessness and helplessness. And it doesn't make it a lot easier, but I do know when it's happening I generally have a little perspective and know that with some rest and time, I'm not going to be in that space anymore. 
Mm. And um, I, I try to remember when that's happening, go to sleep as soon as I can, you know, mm. get, just get rest because it's not really that there's nothing going on at the level of identity. It's all going on at the level of the body feeling fatigued and needing to recover. Mm. And there's usually something going on physiologically that is provoking that experience. And if I just get proper rest and nutrition and water, I'm going to, I'm going to get through it. And I don't have to even identify with any of that stuff. It's just a temporary manifestation of the body being fatigued essentially. Yeah. First, thank you so much for being so open. I wasn't joking when I said I really appreciate the level of rawness and honesty that you have. And ultimately, it's so easy, especially for public personalities, teachers and coaches and consultants to walk around saying, my life is great. Let me show you the glossy stuff only and right. actually pretending not to be human. We're all perfectly imperfect. Exactly. Everyone is dealing with whatever it is in various ways, you know, physicality, finance, relationship. It doesn't matter who you are. I don't care. You know, Barack Obama. Like it doesn't matter exactly. who you are. We're all human. So exactly. we really appreciate you being a great example hmm. of just being open and being totally perfect human. Mm, my you pleasure. My, yeah. my pleasure. Yeah. No, it's, it's so important. I, I, I cannot stand the bullshit that, you know, and especially in this sort of spiritual thinking, coaching sort of thing, all of the, the big glowy smiles and stuff. It's great. It's great to be able to glow and to smile and feel your presence and so forth. But this notion that people have transcended no, we're in this earth plane together. We're hanging out in a, on the earth plane. Please get over it with the transcension. Unless your life is just nothing but just total ease, then, but then it's just naive. Then that person actually isn't even really having truly embodied experience anyway. So this is not, the, the earth plane is not the plane where we, hang out in this state of pure bliss and transcended samadhi all the time. I agree with you hundred percent. That's actually my personal belief. I believe that growth does come from overcoming challenges and there is sweetness in going through the ups and the downs. And that's the whole roller coaster, right? Of this human experience. Exactly. I, I truly believe that. Some people want to believe that, hey, we're here to just be and be in joy and, and bliss. And I'm like, that's awesome. I, I haven't met a person <laughs> who, who, who can do that. If there are, I'm happy to do a podcast interview with them, but I haven't met anyone. Like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and, and if someone comes to me being bliss and joy all the time, I'm going to really like, really, I'm going to be very skeptical about meeting someone like that. I, get, I think too, the key has for me has become, because I know not to expect that my life is going to be 
any easy cup of tea moving forward. I just know that some people will try to, I think in an effort to like make me feel better or something, talk about how they could see me walking again or something like that and this and that. And I don't know where exactly that comes from. I'm very pragmatic. I know that my life is going to throw me challenges every day. And it's going to throw me sometimes extreme challenges. I'm not naive to that. And let's, my hope, and I guess I could say it, it, it would be maybe my practice as well, is what can I do not to avoid those challenges because I know they're unavoidable, but what can I do to make the most of them and try to even have some fun with them as they're happening? What is it, what's the outlet going to be? For me, humor is a big outlet. Music is also a big outlet. Being able to just make fun of myself, make fun of the world, turn it into music, turn it into comedy, whatever. Not to avoid things, but to be able to navigate through the challenge without it taking me out. So are you actively doing like self-deprecating type humor or can you make it a little bit more concrete for us? What does that look like for, for us watching your life? Yeah. Sometimes I'll just laugh at the absurdity of it all, like the absurdity of the human experience. Sometimes I'll just look at this body with these chicken legs that I have that are deformed and 21 years of hanging out doing nothing makes a, a lower body look pretty bizarre. And I'll just laugh at the absurdity of it all. I'll laugh at the absurdity of the human experience. I'll laugh just to laugh because... By yourself, I mean, with others? By myself, with others. Whomever wants to laugh with me, I invite anyone and everyone to laugh with me about the absurdity of the human condition because really, ultimately, it's pretty damn absurd. And I think that sometimes we do ourselves a bit of a disservice, I think, taking it too seriously. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> that guy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happens at the end of this? Well, we're, we die. Yes. It's, that's the punchline to all yeah. of this is that we die at the end. It's like, what a great punchline. All these things that we're taking so seriously, all of these things that we worry about, most of which will never happen, ultimately just to die. It's what a funny joke the whole damn thing is. And I, I want to bring that awareness into the present moment and be like, hey, I'm going to die anyway. I might as well die in this moment here with you, CK, and just let it all hang out and just be as real as possible because I'm already dead. Mm. 
I'm already gone. Krishnamurti, one of my favorite philosophers, would talk about practicing death before dying. Mm. And then and that was a big part of his spiritual practice was practicing death before dying. And he would talk about how there is this illusion that people have that death is that life is related to continuity, like the continuity of one's physical body, the continuity of one's bank account and one's relationships, etc. People confuse continuity with life. And then death is a discontinuous moment. It is a moment where we go from the known to the unknown. And yet it's, it is to think of the duality of life and death in those terms of continuity versus the lack of continuity, I think is missing the whole point of life. Now, like life is so much more than a continuous process. As in procreation, survival, is that what you mean? Yeah, and even from the, the moment of someone's birth to the moment of their death, we can consider that a life. But what about when you just go outside and you look at the stars and you just feel the vastness of the universe? I'm not thinking about, in those moments, I'm not thinking about, well, I was born here and someday I will die. Instead of feeling this consciousness that we are all experiencing together, that is profound. It's absolutely, it, it, it's beyond the word. Profound doesn't even describe it because it is all that is. Life is all that is. It's not about one person's journey from birth to death. Life is all that is. And I would prefer to open up to experience life as all that is versus look at it through the limited lens of this Sam ego going through from birth to death. Mm. Now, that's a very limited way of perceiving life because it perceives it only through my own limited memories and experiences. And mm. I don't know if this is making any sense to those listening and I don't really care either. I'm just jamming. I feel like I've got a guitar in my hand and I'm just jamming along and creating whatever's going on and just ch channeling it through to whatever we're talking. I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. No, this is perfect. So let me do a quick recap. Mm -hmm. So the younger CK will look at life as a, from an individual lens. Like this is my life. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my fates. Therefore, I'm going to set a goal and achieve it. And that's going to be my life. And then CK had a, a very beautiful spiritual awakening through ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. And I realized like, holy shit, there's much more to the individual. There's the one-to-one, one-to-many, one a many-to-many -many type of relationship in life. Mm -hmm. And then I stumble upon a beautiful video that actually described what we're describing beautifully called the egg. I don't know if you've ever seen it. No, I haven't. Yeah, if you Google the egg and um, the YouTube video, I'll, I'll share this with you. Remind me to share this with you. It's, it said it beautifully and in, in a beautiful way. <clears throat> and 
the way that it articulates this whole collection of consciousness is that throughout time, from the beginning of time to the end of time, consciousness is a collective whole. And you are just a reflection of who I am in a different time. Yeah. So it's not even just in yeah. this moment, collective consciousness is mm. through the entire time. <laughs> mm. Beginning to end, consciousness is displaced and experienced in life through all different lenses and the collective whole is yeah. who we are. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, there you go. There so, you go. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yes. I mean, it. that's... That's a mind blown moment right there. And it's exactly what I'm talking about is I want to have the experiences of the mind getting blown on a regular basis. Cause otherwise if it's not blown, then what's it doing? It's just resorting back to its own version of what it thinks knowledge is. And it's like, that's not knowledge. My memories aren't knowledge. The intellectual concepts that I've learned are not knowledge. What's knowledge, what's really amazing is when the mind literally can't keep up with what it's taking in and it goes, whoa, there's new input that is just completely destroyed my version of reality. And I want to keep doing that over and over again because I know that anytime... I construct a reality, it's, it needs to be broken up. It needs to be broken up. Just like when Buddhists make the mandalas, as soon as they finish those mandalas, as soon as they, and they've put all of these hours upon hours, days upon days into creating these mandalas, what's the first thing they do? They look at it, they pray, and then they brush it away because nothing is ever permanent so the question now to you is uh, by the way again we're on the same wavelength i love this mantra memento mori that ultimately we're gonna die and mm -hmm. some people at first would say oh my god see so you this dark <laughs> why do you why do you say that what about living but we're like hey this is the law of impermanence right we're not gonna be here forever and if so then what is it that i choose to do with my life ultimately mm -hmm. and i love also recently i came across a beautiful way to articulate this is a lot of people say hey live as if this is the last day of your life yeah that's one way to do it if it's the last day of my life i'll probably do it very hedonistically versus, mm -hmm. but but the reframe around is lit as if you're going to die today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or is that live as if you were going to die? Yeah. So that now all of a sudden is no longer today, but now I can have liberation yeah. to actually be and say and do everything that I want to do versus being very constrained. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I absolutely agree with that. You know, I think this is one of the things that, when we're talking about the way in which mindfulness relates to say leadership and business, because this is the world that you and I are in is bridging philosophy with the pragmatic 
helping people with their businesses, helping leaders through understanding what we're talking about and taking these concepts and embodiment practices and bringing this into the moment and creating value from it. This is where the key is, in my opinion, in opinion, because this is how to be completely courageous in every moment of your life. Because if you have already gone through the process of preparing yourself to die, just like a samurai who has gone through a training, not only with swordsmanship, but samurai were historically trained to let go and die before going into battle. That way, when they were in battle, their movements and their mindset was so precise because they were already dead. They experienced complete presence and calm because they weren't in a conflict with anything. With They weren't in a conflict with the enemy. And... So this is, if you're someone who is an entrepreneur, like CK and I work with, or a leader of some sort, just think about the way in which this is going to impact your ability to function with your work and your career and your life, your personal life, from a place of courage and strength and power because you're not in some kind of a mental reaction to the circumstances of your life. And you're not afraid because the biggest fear of all, the one of death has already been dealt with. So let's make it a little bit more practical, if you don't mind. Conceptually, it's easy to say, yes, I'm going to die one day. I'm going to live courageously. Yes. And what are some of the steps that you may recommend for someone who is may not necessarily have the psychedelic experience yet, may not necessarily have the spiritual awakening experience yet, may not necessarily have breathwork experience yet. What are some of the ways you can chunk it down for them to actually truly embrace and surrender that, hey, yeah. one day I'm going to die and today yeah. I'm going to live as fully, as deeply as possible. Yeah. So I use an acronym in my work of BEATS. And BEATS is B-E-A-T-S. And it stands for breath, energy, attention, talent, and service. And so the reason why I use that acronym is because in every moment of our life, we are either on the beat or we are off the beat. Mm. But when you are listening to say a musician, it's very obvious if they're on the beat or they're off the beat because a musician is creating something auditory, which allows you to be able to hear that. Mm -hmm. When you are doing athletics, there's a rhythm going on. There's something that the, if a basketball team is experiencing a collective rhythm as they are moving together, there's a beat that you can sense happening and their energy and their attention is responding to that beat. So if we listen to music or if we see it in athletics, it's really obvious that there's 
this rhythm happening and people are in the moment or martial arts. So you can see a rhythm occurring with people doing martial arts. And it's a very graceful and beautiful thing to watch. Now, what we don't realize is that we are experiencing a rhythm all the time within us and around us every day. There's an inner beat happening. There's our heartbeat, but then there's also this sort of inner sense of rhythm that's occurring if you pay close attention to it. And there's also, say you're in a boardroom, say you're working, you're having a meeting. There's a rhythm that group has, that team has, that if you pay close attention to it, you can start to work with that rhythm and connect to it. Now, the breath, like we were talking about earlier, connects you to the parasympathetic nervous system, connects you to the vagus nerve, takes you out of that fight or flight stress response. Now you're able to be more present. When you're more present, you can actually sense energy more. You can feel energy. You can feel not only your own energy, but you can also become aware of the energy of people who are also in your environment. We all know the experience of when we are relaxed inside of us, inside of ourselves, we can pay better attention. We can observe what's going on in other people more because we're not in our own little head trip about what's going on. So we can actually feel our own energy and feel their energy better. Now from there, your breath and your energy, these are in and of themselves neutral. Energy without direction is just neutral. If I'm just sitting here and paying attention to the energy in my body, the energy in my mind, it's neutral. It doesn't have a direction. So from there, then I can choose with intention what my, where to place my attention. Not from a place of habit, but from a place of responding to what's occurring now in the moment. So now we've got the B, E, and the A of beats. From there, I'm going to want to filter my attention through my talent, whatever that talent is. And then finally, that's it's all done in the spirit of service because I'm serving others by doing so. I'm creating value from my presence, no matter what that is. And something that a lot of people don't realize is just your simple being, your present moment awareness, just that alone is creating value. Just your ability to listen and pay attention is creating value. You could hang out with a monk in the room who says nothing. You could feel a tremendous amount of value from what they offer just by being present, not even saying anything. Yeah. And so by using this BEATS acronym, what it helps people to do is remember that we have to get on the rhythm of what's occurring inside of us or around us and getting that there is a rhythm. And when you can connect it to your breath energy, 
conscious awareness with attention and your talents to be of service, it gets you out of your own head and into the moment to take action based on what your intention is. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. A uh, quick story. So speaking of monks, before my first ayahuasca experience, plant medicine experience, I actually had the good fortune of meeting the Dalai Lama in close proximity. Hmm. And it wasn't because of the things that he was saying that really moved me. It was his presence. Mm -hmm. I really felt his compassion for the room. I really felt his compassion for his enemies. Mm -hmm. Just the generosity that he shared. So I, I started just weeping. And then to uh -huh. me, it was shocking at the time because almost like android i didn't cry what is this thing coming out of my eyes <laughs> wow so yeah so to your point and then that actually started my own path in exploring ways of being and compassion and generosity and emotion this rich mm. that i've been missing most of my life i love that I love that. Yeah, that the what you speak are speaking to is just so powerful. And we give a lot of lip service to living from the heart, but there's a way to actually do it. And it we don't have to compromise on our self-protection. I think a lot of people will get in their heads because they think I, I can't be in my heart in this situation where, you know this is a very important thing. I have to be very analytical and, uh, and very serious in my disposition and so forth. And this guy, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I understand the mentality of those people. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and I, and I get it too. I've been there myself. Yeah, yeah. And can we just relax? Can we just let go, let go of the need to try to, protect ourselves from anything. What are we trying to protect ourselves from? What on earth? And then what you realize is that an open heart actually already has its own protection. It's already protected. It doesn't need the reinforcement of ego behind it to... Can you say more about that? What do you mean open yeah. heart is own protection? Yeah, an open heart is... It, it has its own protection. It's not going to be... How often do people really take advantage of someone with an open heart? How often does that really happen? Mm, not as often, I think, as one might think. I actually heard Gary V talking about this the other day. He was saying people get this idea that if you're kind and just open that people are going to take advantage of you. He said, I never experienced that. Never experienced that. And kindness, just operating from a place of open-hearted kindness, it's very disarming for people. And people want to collaborate. They want to be on your team when you're coming at a situation from an open heart. They want to be able to engage with you because it feels good because they know you're going to be going for a win-win for them, whether they're on your team or whether they're 
someone that you're considering doing business with and negotiating with, they can feel that you're coming from a genuine place of connection and that you prioritize kindness. You prioritize the noblest of human values, which is warmth and kindness. And yeah, it's very disarming. It's very disarming to people. Now, this, if I'm coming from this space with my furrowed brow and my analytical mind and I look sort of <laughs> distant, you're going to be looking at that energy. You're going to be like, what is he going to be trying to get from me? He, what is he? He's clearly got an agenda here because his energy is held back. He's back in his body. He's holding something. He's stiff. But if I'm just show up and open and open my rib cage, let my heart breathe, be here with you. Now we can just be together and realize that business does not have to mean being closed off and cold at all. In fact, I think that's a, I think I'm hoping that we outgrow that paradigm of leadership, of thinking that somehow corresponds with strong leadership. I think the strongest leadership comes through kindness and compassion and a genuine desire for everyone to end up in a better place than they started. Yeah, beautifully said. We have the US election coming up. Yeah. So in my mind, what is a great leader? <clears throat> Someone with an open mind, open heart, straight spine in an open hand mm. and really coming from service versus what's in it for me. So mm -hmm. open mm -hmm. heart, open mind, open hand, and then straight spine. I like that a lot. And the straight spine being taking responsibility for your own stature, both physically, mentally, and emotionally. And also what you stand for. Yes. What you stand for. Yeah. Yeah. So for someone, again, I'm using younger CK because he is easy target, who yearns to do more of that. Who yearns to you know, have a more of an open mind, open heart, open hand, and then straighter spine. Mm -hmm. You're looking at Sam who embodies straight spine and an open heart. What would you say to a younger CK, like tactically, step by step? What can he do to try on really owning his values, what he stands for, his voice, and also his heart? The first thing that I would ask that younger CK is what's really important to him? What is his, if we break down and we go beyond goals and we look at life purely from the place of intention, what is really most important to that young CK would be what I would want to know first and foremost. Like how does, what's a successful life? What, what feels, what makes life worth living? So in that response, I'm guessing there would be something 
beyond needing to prove oneself. That it would have something to do with joy and freedom and happiness. And so then I would encourage that young CK to then look at what brings joy and freedom and happiness into life. And to really take a close look at it and to see whether or not it is the whether the mindset or what young CK thinks is going to bring him greater joy, fulfillment, and happiness and freedom, whether that is actually what's going to do that for young CK or not. Mm, the strategy, <clears throat> the path. Right. Yeah. Because oftentimes we can mistake the strategy for the experience and think, as long as I have this strategy in place, at some point, I'll be happy. I will be, I will have more freedom. I will have more fulfillment. So what do we do by doing that? I would try to, I would try to dig deep with young CK and look at, well, with compassion, obviously, what are we actually doing by doing that? We're saying happiness is reserved for those who have been successful in their strategy. Mm. Happiness is reserved for those who have followed their strategy to a T and shown up with the discipline to do it every day and shut off their emotions and just swallowed their feelings and just grind their way through life. And that someday happiness and fulfillment and freedom will come. Now I would ask that young CK to actually look and see, is that actually true? Is shutting off your feelings, shutting off your emotions, and just grinding your way through every day in order to experience what you think in your mind is on the horizon somewhere. Is that actually going to bring you more fulfillment? Is that going to bring you more of the happiness and freedom that you're actually seeking? Because what I'd hope that young CK would be getting out of the conversation would be that he would then see that the patterns of thinking and behavior that are so rigid actually reinforce a rigidity. So that day of fulfillment and freedom and happiness never truly comes. Instead, more and more rigidity gets built into the system. And then no matter how much money that young CK makes, no matter how much status that young CK acquires, that goal of the fulfillment and the freedom and the happiness is always out of reach. 
In fact, those things that were supposed to bring more happiness, freedom, and fulfillment, now that young CK can see that they actually didn't do that. So then he wonders if he's been lying to himself this entire time, or if the, he's been fed the wrong story, or if there's something wrong with him that he hasn't been able to experience the freedom, fulfillment, and happiness. Because everyone else on Instagram seems to get it. And because he- everyone else on Instagram <laughs> seems to get it. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. What's wrong with it? And in the meantime, like they say that, the neurons that fire together, wire together. So what gets wired into the brain is that rigid strategy is the only way of getting to the freedom, fulfillment, and happiness. Following that rigid strategy with discipline every single day is the only way of achieving some type of hypothetical outcome of freedom, happiness, and fulfillment. And yet that's not led to that result. So then there's the conflict between that part of the brain going, wait a minute, I should have experienced some of this by now. But then, so it's, then it's getting hardwired in. So then the dialogue becomes, I know this is the way that I'm supposed to proceed through life to achieve freedom, happiness, and fulfillment. And the other part is going, well, bullshit, that didn't happen. And now you're just hardwired to think, that the more rigid you are, the more happier you're going to be, but it, you know, it doesn't happen. So then it creates all this inner conflict that creates all of the, why didn't I get there? What, ha- what happened in the meantime, there have been all of these incredible present moments that have been missed along the way because it never was about getting to the destination. It was about being more playful and creative with the present moment experience that we're all having. Because as cliche as it is to say, it's true, this moment right now is all that exists. So if I am postponing my happiness and fulfillment until some arbitrary deadline when I have achieved some goals, I've just kidnapped my own happiness and fulfillment. And I've said to myself, I'll give that back to myself when I'm good and ready. Yeah. I feel the days of my youth have been recreated in this brief description. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and yeah, those are the dark nights of soul moments. What's it all for? Yeah. And if not joy, ultimately. Yeah. It's, it's so simple that I think that it's, it comes off as an insult to the ego mind. The ego mind wants to make things so complicated, but yet it's so damn simple. No, it's just, it truly is embracing that this moment is the only moment that we ever have. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as getting that every moment of our experience of life has happened through us and that we've been, we haven't even been in control the whole time. Yeah. We've been flailing around trying to pretend we're in control, but yet we've been divinely graced with being and being supported by nature and supported by other human beings. 
we have all, every single one of us has been supported by thousands or millions of human beings and bacteria and all of these things that we don't even think of. We go through life thinking of Sam and CK and whoever is listening to this, John and Stephanie or whoever you are, go through life in the, with these blinders on thinking that, that we are in control of these lives. How much control do we really have? We're being supported by this whole ecosystem of the earth and of the collective consciousness and of people doing things for one another. I didn't make this t-shirt. I didn't make these headphones. I didn't make this microphone. None of this stuff in my surroundings that I have anything to do with. And yet here I am thinking that I am somehow in control. I have nothing to do with any of this stuff except for placing it in a certain orientation in this room. Yeah. And here I am benefiting from these microorganisms in my gut, people around the world who have been manufacturing things, creating things, ideas that have been passed on by great sages that I have internalized and made my own. So little of it has anything to do with me. Instead, it's when I can really accept that it's truly about letting go and accepting that divine grace is moving through all of us all the time. That's where the beauty really lies. But the ego hates that because it wants to prove that it was able to do things in some sort of special way. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I'm the master of my fate. How dare you tell me otherwise? Right. <laughs> um, okay. So let me make it a little bit more practical for those who are listening to this. Thank you. You can be my ground to practicality here. There you go. Uh, they say that the mind is a great servant, but a terrible master. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about here is ultimately the art of using this tool. That we all have beautiful, powerful, very well developed, especially those who are listening to this, to this podcast. They like to engage in intellectual, cognitive conversations as a way to exercise the, the muscle that is mm -hmm. the mind. Mm -hmm. So, then how do we use this tool in a practical way? Right? Because we're not saying, correct me if I'm wrong, Sam. We're not saying, hey, just surrender our sovereignty. Go mm -hmm. with the flow at 100%. Mm -hmm. We're not saying that. That's right. We're also not saying to say total determinism, my will shall be done, like kind of a way. The answer is somewhere in the middle somehow. That's the, right. The middle way. So That's can right. you share with us some practical ways to use this very powerful, this very potent tool that we do have in such a way to create the life that we love. Yeah. The way, the practical way, let's just start by now, right now. Just take a moment to imagine yourself in any given situation, say where you are experiencing a sense of conflict with someone, with another person. Now, on the one hand, you have 
what you want to communicate that is true for you, there is a, and it is important to understand and to appreciate the fact that we are separate beings, that we are not merged into the same being, you and your spouse, you and your partner at work, whatever, you're clearly not the same being. However, there's a degree to which you are sharing in the same energy. Now, a good way to work with this is to sense, to, uh, as you search your memory for an experience that you've had where there is conflict with someone, feeling to what degree was that conflict either resolved or made worse by your focus on your separate perspective? To what degree did you actually, and this happens with spouses all the time, where there's a, a right or wrong sort of uh, direction where it's, I want to be right and I want to make that person wrong because this is, it's a, the protection of one's ego. And yet in that battle, <clears throat> how has that turned out? Anytime that those battles have occurred, how has that ultimately turned out? Probably not so well. I right. know. Ego against ego. Mm -hmm. So rather than seeking understanding, you know, the reactive mind says, I am seeking to be understood. That's what the reactive mind says. And I am seeking to have the person who is listening to me understand me in a way in which it will shut them up so that they won't share their perspective with me and they'll agree that I was right. And then I will have won this conflict and then we can move on. The child in us operates from that place frequently. I used to do this a lot in my marriage. I'm no longer married, but this came up frequently. The whole right or wrong thing. Mm. Now, understanding <clears throat> the way in which that is futile is essential. No one has ever gotten anywhere through winning in a battle that has actually helped both parties come out on the other side with a better understanding of each other. There is no relating that's actually occurring in those situations. Instead, it's resorting to trying to protect one's perspective by separating from the other. Now, on the one hand, it is important to understand that we have boundaries and to be able to separate from the other. But the question then becomes, where are we coming from? Are we coming from trying to be more right than the other person? Or are we coming from truly trying to have an understanding and relate to the other person in a way where you let go of your agenda to be right and ultimately work on focusing on both people winning? Now, whether this is in a 
romantic partnership or whether this is in a business partnership, co-founders, co-founders, yeah. mm -hmm. doesn't matter. The same rules apply. Yeah. Question is, this is where the rubber meets the road with mindfulness and emotional intelligence. And we can easily let our egos get in the way of our own best interest and feel as though we have to protect our rightness yeah, and never actually come to a proper understanding of what's going on and then create ultimately dissonance in the relationship that can sometimes never heal. Yeah. Whether it's a romantic partnership, whether it's co-founders or whatever, you may, even in that conversation, that one conversation of trying to be right, trying to win over the other person, you may create a dissonance that takes days, weeks, months, years, or forever to actually heal. Yeah. Whereas if you just take the mo a moment to check in with yourself and really sense, am I truly present with this person? Or am I trying to be smarter than them or be more right than them? If I, if I truly check in, am I truly going for a win-win? That's, you're saving yourself so much time, so much energy, potentially money. There are so many things that you're at risk of losing in those types of conflicts just because the ego tried to take over and win the argument. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very rich topic to dive into, reflecting on my own personal experience, as well as seeing other clients' experience. If I look at a simple model of ego against ego, then it's a matter of who's mm -hmm. But if I actually add into a third entity, any relationship, marriage, a business, a partnership, whatever, a friendship, whatever that may be, then it's less about ego against ego. It's about how do we nurture the third entity? Mm, I like that. And then also the first, the first sentence that the Tao Te Ching came to mind, the way that can be spoken of is not the eternal way. Mm -hmm. So sim simply said, truth cannot be described or articulated. That's right. Truth can be felt, but it can be by described by words, right? That's right. That's it's right. the alpha and the omega. So in my mind, truth is not a fixed entity. Correct. In my mind, how I'm going forward in going to any future potential conflicts or point of discussion, I'm going to be thinking about it's not about getting to the truth with words, rather it's describing around the truth and in it, the discussion, truth can be felt and be palpable. And hopefully, I'm talking to Chris Voss soon, negotiator, that mm -hmm. we can come up with something that's negotiated that can be even better mm -hmm. than what either side thought about in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one image comes to mind and that is 
when you see people practicing martial arts and they're really practicing it as a spiritual discipline, there's never any antagonistic relationship with the enemy. Ultimately, it's like a dance. We want to dance and one of the people is going to be defeated in the dance, but done so with great respect and honor. In fact, there's a great, I'm trying to remember the, the movie. It's a famous movie where there's a Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris fight scene. And Bruce Lee defeat Chuck Norris. And he, you could see he clearly has honor and respect for him. And that, I think, is so key. A true, genuine honor and respect whether that is trying to navigate through a, a tough ch communication in a relationship with your partner or spouse, or whether that is working with some sort of nego negotiation or a co-founder or whatever on your team. If you can approach it as essentially a dance of two people where there's no winner and there's no loser. You just want to work with as much grace as you possibly can and as much honor and respect for the other as you possibly can versus trying to defeat them. When I studied Aikido, I had to really learn how to back off from trying to defeat my partner. I remember my sensei would come up to me and say, it's not about power over the other. It's about efficient use of the energy that's already present here between you. It's about, it's not about, the goal is not to defeat the enemy. The goal is to manage the energy effectively with presence. And so I had to, as this big six foot three guy, I just wanted to I thought this was fun. I'll get to beat people up. Having no idea that wasn't what it was all about at all. And then ultimately seeing that Aikido is much more of a dance and the more connected and centered one can become in that, the more powerful they actually become. It actually translates into having greater strength because you're not in a place of trying to force yourself against the opposition. You're there in a interactive play with the quote unquote enemy. So circling back to your origin uh, story of experiencing a tragic accident and allowing it to catalyze it to be the beginning of your life's work. What would you say to someone else who is on their path to discover their life's work? Should they look for some great tragic suffering <laughs> or are there ways that they could do to. I, I, I per I'm, I'm personally always trying to save people from, uh, I don't know if nothing can save people, but I'm trying to, to ultimately see how much suffering I can spare people from by seeing that you can get, 
you can get the wisdom without the the trauma. And I'm gonna challenge you a loving challenge, by the way. Yeah, please. The point of philosophical question that I have. But could you really acquire the wisdom without the pain? I'm not saying without pain, because I think every one of us goes through pain. Mm. And maybe just to try to maybe something trauma as severe as paralysis, maybe. I'm talking about trauma at a pretty se severe level at the moment. Mm. But yes, I think you're absolutely right. And with pain comes awareness, comes wisdom. And one of the things that I would suggest to anyone listening to this who is looking to find more of a sense of purpose, connection, et cetera, I like to use this term experiential resume. If you look at your life as everything that you have been through, especially the wounds, the psychological wounds that you've experienced that have, where you have felt separate from others and you have felt disconnected or whatever. If you look at everything as having value for the experiential resume, it's there that one begins to discover one's uniqueness. And in certain respects, I'm not unique. I'm certainly not the first person in a wheelchair to be helping people with empowerment. That's for sure. And I'm certainly not the first person, first Western mind to be trying to translate Zen and Taoist practices into modern day practical advice. Not at all. However, the particular circumstances of my particular life have given me my own experiential resume that cannot be copied by anyone else. And it's in that experiential resume that we all possess that we have our own unique genius that no one can copy because they haven't had the experiences that we've had. Look at that. Look at your experiential resume. Look at the education that you have received as a person that you couldn't, that could not have come through academic credentials or anything like that, that are purely as a result of how you have become you. Yeah. Beautifully said. I want to underline this point a bit for younger Sam, younger CK, whoever was listening and maybe doubting themselves. Hey, I'm not as good looking as Sam. I don't want, I'm not riding on a wheelchair. That doesn't make me believable as a, someone to support others. I'm just making things up. Yeah. But the reality of it is you are truly a unique snowflake. And I don't say it in with a disempowering context because all of your upbringing, your parents, your education, your experiences, all of your triumph and all of your failures have brought you today here. Mm -hmm. And there is wisdom to share mm -hmm. uh, to others who are on this path, who may look to you and say, oh, I want to be like you as well. And then the reason why I keep referring to the younger CK and the younger Sam is because I know the younger CK will love to have 
this type of inspiration, this type of mental model, this type of action or tactics as a way to helping create new ways of living, new ways of being, new ways of action, right? That I would have loved to pay tons of money for, but mm -hmm. at least minimally one person, the younger version of you will want the wisdom that you have right now today. Beautifully said. Yeah. Beautifully said. Are you open to some rapid fire questions and we can complete? Sure. Yeah. Throw them at me. Cool. What is your definition of purpose? My definition of purpose is, that's a great question. My definition of the purpose of purpose is co-creating meaning along with the divine. Thank you. Mm -hmm. What's your definition of fulfillment? Co-creating fun along with the divine. I love that. <laughs> What's your definition of wealth? Mm. My definition of wealth is an awareness that our needs are always taken care of. Mm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And to... The reason why we circulate around the topic of spirituality, ultimately to me, the younger version of me really wanted some rational answers and why I should feel psychological safety. And I want it, it, it uh, I wanted evidence to support psychological safety. But the whole idea of spirituality that really got me to this ease, this inner peace, this inner calmness that I finally got was, well, ultimately I'm going to die. And <laughs> so all these concerns and worries about what's ultimately for not. So I might as well relax. So there yeah. you go. Yeah. Said. What do you do to not take yourself too seriously? try to be around entertaining people and try to also entertain myself. That's what I do. I, and it's very easy to take oneself too seriously in this world that we live in, especially feels like in this day and age, people are taking themselves more seriously than ever. Yesterday on Facebook, I posted something. I said, I voted for your mom <laughs> that's funny <laughs> i mean it's just i'm so sick of all of the battles yeah, you yeah. got to get out there and vote you need to yeah sure yeah that's true but let's also realize let's remember the absurd here guys please let's just so speaking of that what have you realized as an illusion in the last year in year 2020. What have I realized is an illusion in the past year? Yeah. One of the things that I've realized is an illusion in the past year is that, that our 
freedom of speech that we have in this country is a lot more fragile than I think any of us have been realizing. Yeah. The freedom of speech itself is an illusion, at least in our modern world. Yeah. I recently uh, listened to a conversation between Tristan Harris and Joe Rogan mm-hmm. and the filmmaker who did, who made Social Dilemma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's something for all of us to think about. Mm-hmm. It's quite illuminating. Mm-hmm. Power of technology and these platforms. And ultimately, freedom of speech, as you said. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I'm very disturbed about what's happening with cancel culture. Yep. Topic for another conversation. Yeah. (laughs) So Sam, I want to acknowledge you for the willingness to come on my show and just dance without a safety net. Yeah. You had no idea really what we're going to be talking about. I really appreciate you sharing with us. That's the way I like it. Your origin story, you share with us how you strengthen open heart, open mind, open hand, and, and straighten our spine. You share with us a lot of tactical tools. So, so thank you. Just you know, being a Zen warrior embodiment mm. uh, so that we can all be a little bit freer, a little bit straighter, and a little bit more courageous in living the life that we want to live. And through this roller coaster, this fun ride called the human life. Well, CK, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I knew I was going to enjoy it a lot. I, I could do, go another two hours, but <laughs> I'm being cognizant of your time. It was certainly a win till the next time. Thank All you right, so much. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Take care.